Welcome back to our course on reading the Bible for all it's worth. In our last session, we talked about some Old Testament genres. So we're, we're taking a break between the O and the A, uh, sorry, the O and the I in our interpretive process. So we've said we're, we're doing poima, P-O-I-M-A, preparation, observation, interpretation, meditation, and application. And we're pausing between that O and the I, the observation and the interpretation. And in that break, we're, we're looking at some different genres of biblical literature. And the genres then are ways of seeing this, this type of biblical writing that you're going to encounter on a regular basis. This is kind of how it tends to function. And we're doing that as a way to say, this is going to help us be more attentive to what's going on. It helps us in our observation so that we can prepare better for that interpretation stage. Um, so we did in the last session, um, observation of the genres in the Old Testament. So we did five. We did uh, narrative, Old Testament narrative. We talked about the law, legal literature in the Old Testament. We talked about uh, poetic passages. We talked about prophetic passages. And then we talked about wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And so there, there's variation within that, of course, but that gives us a pretty good overview of what's there in those Old Testament passages so that we can be more observant of what's happening in each given book of the Bible as we seek to interpret it. Um, to this, for this session, we're going to do the same thing with the New Testament, and I'm just going to give you three New Testament genres um, and, and just kind of ways to clump these sections together so that as we read through the New Testament, we can do the same thing, clue into what's going on, how is it happening, how do we pay careful attention to observing what's really happening here. So those three sections are going to be um, first, Gospels and Acts, I'm going to put together. Uh, then I'm going to talk about uh, the New Testament letters, sometimes called epistles. They're literally just letters that um, biblical, like, like apostolic characters write to churches. And then we're going to talk about uh, Revelation. We're going to treat the book of Revelation kind of on its own because it is sort of its own deal. So as we start with the Gospels and Acts, I'm going to do what I did um, in the Old Testament genres and start by reading a, um, a, a ex exemplary passage, the kind of thing that you tend to find in this type of literature. So I'm gonna, for this, I'm going to read in Mark chapter 4, 35 to 41. You can just listen along as I read this pretty, um, pretty standard section from the Gospels. It works like a lot of the Gospels and Acts tend to do. So Mark tells us this, Mark 4, 35. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him. Uh, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, "Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing?" And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, "Peace, be still." And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, "Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith?" And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? All right, so there's our example passage. Now, the, lots of these features of the Gospels and Acts we see in this passage right here. So here's, here's some basic features of how Gospels and Acts work together. Um, the first one is that they are relaying history to us. Okay, so now we have to be careful. It's not always giving us history chronologically in the way that we'd want a typical textbook to, but they are giving us history. The, the idea behind the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts, that, that Luke and Acts basically are written as two separate volumes in, um, in, it's Luke writing both of them, and they kind of are two volumes in one kind of larger whole. 
Um, but in this genre, they're they're not writing it chronologically. It's not all the same. It's not all in the exact same order. Um, but it is conveying to us these are historical events. These are things that took place, and it's being presented as that. So we keep that in mind as we read through the Gospels and Acts. Now, of course, there's going to be a lot of other material within there. There's going to be parables. There's going to be teachings. Um, but all of this is in a historical setting, and, and the history is unfolding as we read. Now, number two along those lines is simply this. The Gospels and Acts show the theological significance of historical events. And I hope that makes sense because that distinction is important. They're showing the theological significance of the historical events. So this is not history in the same way that most history books are. This is biased history. This is theological history. It's showing us what happened in Jesus and in the early church as the Spirit of God empowered them. It's telling us about what happened, recording history, but it's trying to highlight for us the theological significance of the things that happened. Okay, so it's, it's just trying to get us deeper into those types of things. And so as we read these historical events, we want to keep an eye open for the way in which like the writers explore that, the theology of what's happening at the time. Okay, so um, now the third thing along these same lines, the gospel and acts are intentional and selective in what they record. Okay, so again, I'm saying it's history, but it's not quite history in the way that we um, tend to think of history because they're being selective in what they do. And they're intentionally selective in, in what they're choosing to record and what they're not. So Luke talks about, like at the beginning of Luke, he kind of starts his gospel by saying like, he's trying to compile an orderly account in order to like tell his readers what happened, right? Um, but John, John tells us the end of his uh, gospel. So like in John 21, 25, or um, at, at, towards the end of the whole thing, he says that basically there was a whole lot of other things that Jesus said and did that he didn't record. Um, and he, he chose to include those things, he tells us, because he wants us to believe that Jesus is who he says he was. So talking about the historical significance of, or the theological significance of historical events, John is telling us um, explicitly, yeah, Jesus did a whole lot of stuff. I didn't record it all, but I did record these things because I want you to experience the life that is found in Jesus. So every writer has a specific persuasive bent, okay? And so as we read, and we might notice, you know, the same story is recorded often in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sometimes also in John. And as we read through those, we might see, okay, there's a difference between the way Mark records this and the way Luke does. Why? What, what, what was Mark doing that made him leave out these details? Or what was Matthew doing that made him add these details? Um, or why did he include that story and not another one? And, and when a gospel writer leaves out a story that we find in other gospels, we can ask, why? How does it fit their purposes? Um, and, and the same thing, I mean, when we read the book of Acts, um, it's a little bit different, but we're still seeing there's plenty of speeches recorded, uh, conversations recorded, events, happenings, miracles recorded. There's also a whole lot left out. And so we ask, why are these things here? What's it trying to tell us? My final point on kind of the features of the gospel in Acts to, to, to kind of alert us to the lay of the land with these is that these books are trying to be persuasive. So I, I believe fully they're historically reliable. Reliable. I also think they're totally biased. And I, I don't mean that to uh, denounce their reliability. I mean that they're biased in the sense of this is written by people that saw something happened, wrote reliable historical accounts of that, but recorded them so that we could see what they saw and believe what they believed and do business on our own with Jesus. Okay, And they want us to wrestle with Jesus for ourselves. Um, and so... Basically, that's the whole point of it. So as we read these things, let's not try to read them as passive history. Um, let's get caught up in the stories that are being told because that's literally the intention. 
So here's some tips for reading the Gospels and Acts as we go through. Notice that a a lot of what we've said about Old Testament narrative will apply here as well. Um, Gospels are showing more than they're telling. They're they're, um, prescriptive more than descriptive. Those things are certainly true. There is an element where Jesus is directly teaching in the Gospels, um, and the apostles are doing that in Acts. So we keep an eye on the differences, but there is a very similar feel to the, the narrative sections of the Old Testament and the Gospels and Acts. But here's a few tips. First of all, get caught up in the stories. So these stories are amazing, right? Um, Often they're short. Some of them are kind of summaries, right? Um, But like most of these are like living, breathing stories. Like even the shorter ones, you can tend to put yourself into them and get caught up in them and and step into the story, right? Experience the healings, right? Uh, Listen to the speeches. Watch while Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. Watch him as he calms storms, right? In the, in the passage we just read in Mark 4, put yourself in the boat. What would it have been like to be there, to be one of the disciples talking about what do we wake up Jesus or not? How would you feel when he calms the storms? Um, living in these stories are all ways that are going to help us understand the stories themselves better. The second thing to do, so so we get caught up in the stories ourselves, but the second thing is we, we try to look for the, for the big picture. So what's the overall point of each book? Matthew tends to have um, a more Hebrew focus. Um, he, he tends to be writing more to a Jewish audience, it would seem. Luke seems to be less so. Luke seems to clue in more the marginalized and the oppressed and the Gentiles and the, the women and those kinds of things. And so um, look for the emphasis that you see in the different books as you're reading them. And, and the way that you find that out, I mean, you can you can look at a Bible commentary, you can look at a study Bible, you can uh, find a Bible handbook that will give you overviews of each book of the Bible. Um, but the way those people found the emphases in it is just to read the books again and again. Um, pay attention to what's there. Pay attention to how it compares to the other ones. So you can do this, um, digging into the passages and just pay attention to what what tends to be the emphasis of the whole thing. And then and then we ask, uh, how does each element? So so that's the next question. I, analyzing each story, event, and discourse on its own, finding how that fits within the overall big picture theme. Okay. So um, each story, basically, we can see they're, they're writing it down for a reason. It's there for a reason. So ask what's going on with each one, right? When Jesus feeds 5,000 people, ask like, why, you know, when the apostles establish deacons in, in Acts 6, ask why, why is that happening, right? What does each parable teach? How do they relate to each other? Um, those are really important questions to analyze each piece on its own and then look for the relationships between those stories, events, and discourses. So sometimes you'll get um, parable after parable lined up one after another, and you can see how they interact with each other. Sometimes you get a parable told in the wake of a miracle. It's interesting to see the juxtaposition of those things. Um, Sometimes we'll see the Pharisees, scribes, or the disciples acting in a certain way, and then Jesus will tell a story or give a teaching um, that, that sort of, you know, sets that off and shows what a negative example that is of what Jesus is teaching positively about the kingdom of God. Um, so those relationships are really important to see. And we know since these gospel writers and acts um, are, are not trying to record it all strictly chronologically, they're intentionally setting things next to each other. They're using themes and repeating words in a way that kind of helps us see how these things fit together, Right. Um, one example I always love to use is Matthew 18. There's that section in the middle of it that talks about how if a brother's caught in sin, then you go and tell him his fault. And if he repents, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't, you go and get another witness. And the two of you confront him together. And if he doesn't listen to that, then you take him to the whole church. And the, 
So there's that whole issue of kind of dealing with sin. What, what I didn't notice until I started thinking like this is look at it compared to the relative context. There are that passage, that little passage is sandwiched between larger teachings about forgiveness, about not causing people to stumble, um, about how many times can I, my brother sin against me and I still forgive him. Um, and so Jesus is heavily in this passage that's about dealing with sin, heavily, heavily emphasizing forgiveness. And that's really important to see the relationship um, surrounding the whole thing. Um, and finally, uh, the, the last kind of like tip for reading the Gospels and Acts would be just ask what each part as well as the overall message of the book demands of you. Okay, so when you're reading the parables, ask what each parable demands of you. And then ask what the parables as a whole demand of us. And then ask what you know the book of Matthew as a whole demands of us. That, 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 that keeps us from being passive readers of the gospels, right? The books are meant to be persuaded, right? Persuasive, right? So we want to ask, um, what, what, what is the author trying to persuade me of? How's John trying to get me to see Jesus? And, and am I, am I be, like, what's he calling me into there? And am I willing to take that step and to follow him in there? Will I, will I actually believe when he asks me to believe? Um, and how, how should I respond to all these different things? What's worth imitating? What's worth being challenged on? What do I need to lay down in order to do it? Those are all the right questions. So there you go. There's a little briefer overview of um, Gospels and Acts because so much of it fits with the narrative feel. Um, but man, such an important book. And I'll just say in terms of the New Testament, Gospels and Acts take up like half of the New Testament. It's crazy. Um, sometimes we focus a lot on the letters and we kind of bypass Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Some of it's because it feels a little repetitive. Um, I would just say, if it's half the New Testament, we should spend a lot more time in the Gospels than many of us tend to. And that's been a lesson I'm learning recently and such a good reminder. All right. I want to read uh, 1 Corinthians 6 as an example of what we're moving into next, which is the letters. Okay, so everything from Romans uh, through Revelation really is a letter. But but remember, we're going to leave... Um, revelation off uh, as a separate thing after this. But all these are letters, and they're, they're letters written in certain situations to different people. And, um, and so what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11, as an example of this type of New Testament letter. So it may be familiar to you, it may not, but I'm going to read it as our example here, and then we're going to talk through some features and some tips for reading New Testament letters. Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? A brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What I just read there, that's 11 verses uh, in the middle of 1 Corinthians. What I love is it, it illustrates 
the kind of way Paul's talking. He's being very theological, but it's set in the context of a larger conversation that he's having with them, and it's addressing everyday situations. Sometimes we read the New Testament letters like they are theology textbooks written, um, but they really aren't that. They're not, they're, not, they're not exclusively that, I should say. Um, they are giving profound theology aimed at specific practical situations being dealt with on the ground in these pastoral settings in these towns like Corinth. And you can see, even in the section we read, just these 11 verses, he shifts a couple of topics even in that. And so it's always helpful to see the bigger context. So what's going on in these New Testament letters? The letters are um, situational. All of them are situational. Sometimes that's referred to as we call them occasional letters because they're written on a specific occasion for a specific reason. specific reason. Each of the letters was written um, from someone, some apostolic leader, so Paul or Peter or James or John, um, you know, one one of those types of apostolic leaders um, to someone, uh, typically a church, sometimes a group of churches, sometimes an individual person. So these letters uh, give us a whole lot of universal principles, but, um, but we have to see them set in that situational context that they're in. And then, and then similar to what we looked at with some of the, um, some of the Old Testament prophecy, we said it's written for us, but not to us or about us, right? Um, we're going to say the same thing, very, very similar with New Testament letters. None of them are written to us, okay? They're not addressed to us today. They're addressed to a specific situation, so we have to read them accordingly. Now, I'm not trying to say, and hopefully um, by this point you can kind of get my heart on this, I'm not trying to say it doesn't matter to us. I'm not trying to say the commands don't even directly apply to us, but we do have to do that extra work of saying, okay, Paul wrote this to a church in Corinth. Believers in Jesus, people that live in the midst of society just like we do, people that have internal struggles just like we do, um, but he's writing to them at that point in you know, whatever, 60-something BC or AD, um, 2,000 years ago nearly. And so he's writing to that situation. So now what does that mean for us? Um, how do we read the letter written to them and then find out, okay, how would God speak to us through this letter now? Really important to kind of keep that in mind as we move forward. Now, another thing about the letters is that they all tend to follow a, a pretty set format, um, basically meaning there were letter-writing conventions popular at the day, okay? And so for the most part, they follow the same format as other letters that we have from the ancient world. There's many that we've recovered from that time, and they tend to follow a, um, a pattern that, you know, the, the author will list their name, the recipient's names, there'll be some kind of greeting, there'll be a main body to the whole thing, and there'll be a closing to it, right? But the New Testament letters, almost all of them follow a, a similar but slightly altered formula, Okay, and so the greeting, instead of saying like greetings, right, they're offering them grace and peace, and that's significant. It's theological, right? Um, Often they're adding a prayer into there, and often the prayer will kind of give you a sense of what's happening in the rest of the letter. How does the author feel about the people he's writing to? Um, Are there themes in that prayer? And those tend to show up in the rest of the book as we move forward. Um, And then on average, these letters, these New Testament letters tend to be much longer than a lot of the letters that we have surviving from that time. And so, I mean, I guess it makes sense. These apostles, pastors, theologians tended to be wordy, and that's a thing. So when when this formula kind of goes, right, um, we kind of see it across the board. And so we can say when one of those elements is kind of altered or left out, typically there's a reason for it and we can pay attention to it, right? So Galatians, for example, there's no like prayer or praise section. Paul just gets right down to like, hey, 
what is going on here? You guys have been neglecting the gospel. And, um, and so he jumps right in. So sometimes it's significant when these, uh, this approach is, is kind of deviated from a little bit. Another important thing to recognize when we're looking at the New Testament letters is that they're giving us only one side of a conversation. And that's really hard. It's like listening to someone talk on the phone and you can hear what they're saying, but you cannot hear what the other person is saying in response. Um, this is one instance of a one-way communication. And so um, there's a whole bigger context to the whole thing. There's an overarching relationship to each of these letters, right? There's often a preceding dialogue and a continuing dialogue that happens before and after the letter. So in the cases of like Corinthians and Thessalonians, like th- these churches, um, Paul writes multiple letters to them. And, th- and there even seem to be hints of other communications that have happened as well. And so we're really only getting bits and pieces, okay? And so the letter is going to tell us a lot, but there's also like a sense where we have to keep in mind, okay, there's some things that we're missing. So like 1 Corinthians, Paul keeps saying, now concerning this, right? Now concerning spiritual gifts, now concerning, um, he says in like, starts chapter seven, now concerning the matters about which he wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So seems like he is addressing some specific issues that they were raised. And so he's going one after the other. So now that doesn't change everything, but it's important for us to kind of clue into um, what's happening, uh, what's being addressed, why, um, what, might be we, why what might we be missing, um, what questions might have been specific to that setting that might help us see a little bit more what the biblical author is trying to communicate and why. All right. Now we said um, about like narrative and poetry, um, well, I, especially about poetry, my goodness, we said that it tends to communicate not directly, but indirectly, right? So it's it's getting you to step into metaphors and it's communicating a little bit less directly. The letters are the opposite of that. The letters tend to be communicating directly. Now, again, remember, not communicating directly to us. They're not written directly to us, um, but they are a direct form of communication. And so they tend to kind of just come out and say, what's uh, happening, right? So they're, they're filled with commands. There's less figures of speech, although there definitely are figures of speech in there. Um, there's commands, there's questions, um, there's theological truths directly stated, okay? And so um, anyway, they, they're kind of explanatory in tone, instructional, we might even say. And that's important to kind of keep in mind as we go through. And I already mentioned this, but the fifth um, point I want to make about the, the nature of these letters is that they're practical. They're, they're inherently practical, okay? So they're written for a specific purpose. So sometimes, like Romans, for example, seems to be, um, Paul seems to be getting some big theological themes out there, and maybe he's a little bit less um, uh, addressing a specific situation, but there's still a lot of practical stuff in there. And typically what we see is there's something, there's some cause for writing, there's some concern, there's some question that's being addressed. And so they're inherently practical, okay? And so we're not just hearing, as we go, we're not just hearing truths about God, but we're being told those truths for practical reasons, right? So we're maybe it's correcting false assumptions. Maybe it's exposing sinful behavior. Maybe it's like trying to motivate the hearers to to like live and serve in a certain way, okay? So like 1 Corinthians 6, right? We're talking about um, uh, lawsuits against believers, okay? And and now there's some some pretty important theological truths that Paul will lay out there. I mean, he's talking about things like, he says, don't you know that saints will judge the world? I mean, that's a pretty big picture theological thing 
it's kind of a crazy thought. We have to wrestle with what does that mean? But he's saying it in the context of these believers can't get along with each other and they're, um, they're suing each other and it's just a whole big mess. And Paul's just saying like, look, let me give you this big picture theological truth so that you can sort out the behavior that's happening when you are suing each other with these different things. And so we're going to want to explore the theology present, definitely, okay? But we also need to explore the practical reason for which those theological uh, uh, principles are given, okay? And that's going to all help us, like, understand the doctrine itself. Um, Super important as we go through. So tips for reading. Um, First of all, I'd say try to reconstruct as much as you can the original situation or setting. So I would say here, uh, this is a great reason to go to a study Bible um, I think I mentioned this already, but my um, my favorite study Bible at the moment is the ESV study Bible, full of really great, helpful notes. Um, there's so many other great ones that you can go to. Um, you can go to um, any commentary on a book of the Bible. will give you like a summary of the whole book and give you commentary on each passage. Um, there's Bible handbooks that will give you a rundown. But I'll just remind you again, each of those commentaries, what the reason they were written is somebody spent the time to read these books again and again and again. Read the letter again and again and again. Get the context. Get Find the relationships between them. Just sit there and pray and study and soak it in and compare it to other ancient texts. Definitely that's a thing. Um, but you can derive a lot of these things. So setting the setting and situation, you can get some clues um, from commentaries and stuff, but this is something you can do yourself if you have the time and want to dig in. Um, again, it's difficult because you're reading one side of a conversation, but as much as we can, try to place what's happening. Um, that helps. Um, often, when we're reading the letters, we want to try to find the overlap with the book of Acts. Okay, So, for example, when you read First and Second Thessalonians, you can see, you can go back to Acts 17 and find, oh, okay, there's the account of Paul and Thessalonica. And you read that, and you can find when Paul speaks of persecution that they're experiencing uh, in First Thessalonians, you look back and realize, oh, okay, I can see exactly what that was like because Luke narrates that account in uh, in Acts 17. So those kinds of things help uh, help to kind of see, you know, some more of the context that's happening with all those things. Um, the second thing we want to do, in addition to recreating, reconstructing as much as we can the original setting of it, is we want to trace the flow of thought. Okay, so some th- some books like tend to be tend to feel pretty random. So like James feels pretty like proverbial, like he's going through and listing different truths about different things. But even with James, there definitely is a flow and there's logic there. And others are a lot simpler. Um, Romans is not a simple book, but his flow of logic throughout it um, tends to be uh, pretty pretty impressive, consistent, tightly uh, reasoned, all those kinds of things. Galatians is often the same way. And so um, so trying to see, like try to get the flow of thought and find how does each pit, each piece fit within the overall whole of what I'm doing. So when you're reading through Romans, like thinking through, you know, Paul talks about Abraham in Romans 4. Why? Like, how does that fit with the overall argument he's making? It won't be easy for you to quickly arrive at that, but reading it, paying attention to what's going on, you can absolutely discover why is Paul addressing um, Abraham in Romans 4 or, or, or Adam in Romans 5, you know, or baptism in Romans 6, right? Um, and so there's all these things you can build and you can see the way his argument flows. Um, and so these are these are really important um, things to pay attention to the bigger picture, the bigger flow of the overall book. We can see how things fit. Um, the next thing we want to do is ask how the original hearers or the original readers of the books would have understood the message of each of these letters. 
So again, right? So, so uh, an example I like to use is First Corinthians 11 with head coverings, and this is a tough one, man. It's it's really tough. There's a lot to interpret there, um, and so we're kind of you know wrestling with what does that mean? Is like is he trying to get our women to wear? Head coverings um, when they are prophesying and praying like publicly in church, like does he really want us to wear that, or is that symbolic of something else? And so we wrestle with this. But the first thing to ask is not how what would do what would head coverings be like in a modern day church, but what were head coverings like in a church back then? And if we can do the best we can to recreate that, there are passages in the Old Testament that refer to um, women covering their heads or their hair being put down and those kinds of things. Um, and so those things might. Uh, tie in together. And so what we're trying to do is look at what would the original hearers have heard when they heard something about head covering, right? And that helps us kind of do the work now of assessing, like, how should that apply to us today? Some things that seem kind of old-fashioned, I mean, like in the book of Philemon, um, Paul's telling Philemon, like, hey, take your slave Onesimus back. And we want him to be like, hey, like, there's no such thing as slavery. Get rid of this. Um, set this man free. But the way Paul talks about it, if we can ask how the original hearers would have heard it, we can see actually Paul was being pretty radical about saying, hey, this is your slave. He's coming back to you. I want you to treat him like a brother in Christ. Um, and, and so there's just this, this huge exaltation happening. And of course, that's way more complex than I just stated it. But looking for how would that have struck the original audience is a really important piece of us coming further and saying, what does it mean for us today? Um, and so we're just going to look for all those kind of elements, like people who were uh, persecuted, like how, how, how are the promises of hope, would they, how would that have hit them, right? Or, um, you know, like prominent groups, like, like James has a whole lot to say about the wealthy. How would a wealthy person reading James have responded to some of the things that James says? Um, and so as much as we can, we want to put ourselves in the shoes of the original hearers so we can get the full significance of what's being said. From there, we want to ask really important questions like, what are these letters revealing to us about God or about ourselves or about the people around us or about the world that we live in or about the mission that we've been given, right? So the letters are situational, but they give us this big picture theology, okay? So our example in 1 Corinthians 6, these lawsuits, well, believers to believers, right? There's this um, combative nature that's happening. There's this refusal to be wronged. There's this desire to get my own rights, my own needs met. And so in that, he uses theology to address that and just say, hey, be defrauded, be wronged. Like, it's okay. Um, like, we need to be able to work these things out. Um, and basically, uh, just looking in that context, in that setting, what does that say about the relationship between one person to another? What does that say about who God is, that he wants us to not be worried about these little feuds, but instead to be unified, even across ways that we've harmed each other. That's that's really significant, what it says about God and what it says about our relationships with him and with each other and those kinds of things. Um, and the last thing we want to do is just asking how that letter should be practically applied as uh, to us today, today, okay? So the lawsuit thing, great question to ask how that applies today. Um, the head covering thing in 1 Corinthians 11 I mentioned, important to ask how that applies to us today. Some of the passages um, where, uh, you know, end time stuff is is being addressed, like that's talked about in in First and Second Thessalonians, for example. Um, how does that apply to us today? So we dig in and then we can finally kind of answer those questions of how should that shape my thinking today? So I'm, I'm bringing that out there because that is an important piece of reading the letters. But remember, we're going to still go through a uh, interpretation phase. We're going to go through a meditation phase, and then we're going to go through an application phase. And a lot of that's going to come in that application piece. All right. 
Our third and final New Testament genre and our last biblical genre here is Revelation. And Revelation is a beast, and no pun intended. It is a tough book to wrestle with. It is very daunting, intimidating. I used to be terrified of Revelation. Not, not so much like it would give me nightmares, although that's certainly a danger with Revelation, but um, I just didn't even know where to start in interpreting it. So I've since grown to love it. Um, the, the last like class I got to create before becoming a pastor when I was teaching at a Bible college was on the book of Revelation. And my goodness, I spent so many hours digging in and there is so much there. It's so rewarding to dig in. I'm excited about it. Um, and so let me let me start by reading an example passage. I'm going to read in Revelation 1, verses 9 to 20. And so just kind of um, set yourself. You can listen along with me. You can read along with me. But I'm going to read this to give us a feel for what the book of Revelation is like. So Revelation 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right. I don't know how you feel about that, but Revelation is crazy and it's awesome. I love it and I hope that you uh, love it as well or at least will learn to love it. So let's dive in. What, like, what is going on with Revelation? So some features of the book is first, it consists of three genres mixed together. And I swear to you, I'm not making that up. The book itself claims to be um, these three genres. So in uh, chapter one, verses four and five, um, John writes it like a regular letter. He says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him. And so he's, he's following the formula of a letter. He's writing this letter to the seven churches. And so it helps us understand there's a situational nature to what's happening in the same way that we looked at the other letters in the New Testament. Um, so this is written to two kinds of people, right? There's one kind of person that Revelation is written to, that are um, being heavily persecuted for their faith. Um, and like like they're facing death for their faith potentially too. And so it's written to kind of encourage them. There's another kind of person that's being tempted to let go of their faith, compromise with the world systems that are opposed to Jesus. And so it's written to kind of challenge them and say, hey, hold the course, stick with it. So there's this letter there. And, and interestingly, in chapters two and three, the letter contains seven other letters within it. And that's a whole other thing we'll get to in a bit. So one of the three genres, it's a letter. And so in that sense, it fits with the other New Testament letters. 
Now, it's also a prophecy, okay? And so, like, in Revelation 1-3, it's referred to, he says, blessed, are the, uh, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's repeated again at the end in 22-7. Um, and so it's going to pr- record predictions of the future and messages for how God, um, like from God on like what he, how he wants us to live our lives. And, and so like similarly to um, the other Old Testament prophetic, prophetic books that we talked about, it's going to fit in that same genre of it's prophesying. Now that some of that means it's telling the future, but some of it means it's declaring God's word to people at a certain time. This is the word of the Lord speaking to this place. And so we have to kind of sort out and wrestle with. Um, is it future? Is it past? Is it present? Is it ongoing? How does that work? These are the tough interpretive questions, but it does fit in that prophetic mold in a similar way to what we talked about with the Old Testament books. Okay, I have long felt that if the book of Revelation was tucked before Matthew, so you, you read through Zechariah and Malachi, and then you come to Revelation, and then you start into Matthew, and then all the letters, if, if Revelation was there, I think we would be a lot less intimidated by it. I think it fits a lot better thematically and uh, like genre-wise with these Old Testament prophets. And we would not find it so weird and we wouldn't read it quite so literally, I think, sometimes if we saw it next to its Old Testament counterparts. But we tend to treat it like something different because it's at the very end of our Bibles. Now, the third thing, and this is related, the third genre. So it's a letter. It's also a prophetic book, but it also is what's called apocalyptic, okay? And now this one maybe sounds new um, to some of you and maybe sounds problematic to some of you, depending on some of the things you've read. But, but John literally says that. So the first words, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. That's Revelation 1.1. That word revelation is apocalypsis, okay? So it's apocalyptic literature. Um, and what it means is it means a revealing. It, it's like an unveiling of a thing. Um, and so this is was actually like between 200 BC and 280, this was a popular genre. It was, this whole, it was a whole deal like unto itself. So portions of Ezekiel are written like this. Portions of Daniel are written like this. Portions of Zechariah also are in this. And then there's a lot of other things that weren't included in the Bible that are in the style of apocalyptic literature. Okay. And so usually it features like God revealing something. Okay. That's what the word means. Often it's an angel that comes and reveals a thing. That's what we see in like Ezekiel and Daniel and those kinds of uh, things. Um, and then often it's, it's being revealed to a well-known figure. So sometimes you'll see, um, obviously the prophet, but sometimes you'll see, um, Enoch shows up, you know, in some of the non-biblical literature. And so that's kind of how these things work. It, it, it communicates through these big sweeping visions, a heavy, heavy reliance on imagery that goes even beyond the poetry of a lot of the prophetic passages in, say, Isaiah. There's something about the images in Ezekiel, for example, or the second half of Daniel, for example, that is different than the typical prophetic passages that we see in Isaiah and Jeremiah that are very image-based, big sweeping pictures, um, visions, and so all of that. Revelation comes in that vein and does exactly what those do, but it blows all the rest of them out of the water because it's sort of like, it's almost like it just gathers up like hundreds of themes and visions and everything and prophecies from the Old Testament, gathers them up, lumps them into a big ball and says, look, here's what God is doing now and what he will do in the future. It's really beautiful. And there's so many ways that the imagery that Paul or that um, John records in Revelation 
so many ways that imagery ties back to Old Testament prophecy, specific visions that are given. And he's very low key about it. He's subtle about it. doesn't call a ton of attention to it, but he's constantly referencing Old Testament prophecies and it's beautiful. All right. Um, so there you go. There's, there's one thing to keep in mind is there's these three genres all playing together. A letter that's written as a prophetic word in the style of an apocalyptic um, genre. It's crazy. Second point is that Revelation creates a symbolic universe that the reader is invited to inhabit. I don't know if that sounds intimidating to you. Sounds a little stilted to me, but it is important. Revelation creates a symbolic universe that the reader is invited to inhabit. So go live within the symbols that John sets out um, for us. There's so many of these things, okay? So we, we get caught up trying to equate like each symbol with a current event, right? So, you know, you read it and you're thinking, okay, like which of these bowls is World War One or World War Two or whatever, right? Um, which of these beasts or, or, you know, Babylon or prophets or whatever is Russia or Putin or whatever, right? And so we try to make all these ties and connections, but what we should actually start doing is like, let's just be saturated with that imagery. Like, let's step into that world. The, the, the way to appreciate what's going on is just step into the world. Let the symbols be symbols and kind of picture yourself in these scenes, okay? So when there's a woman that's giving birth and there's a dragon that's trying to consume her baby, let's not immediately tie all the um, connections to what they are, although that one, maybe surprisingly, is easier to interpret than most in Revelation but let's let the imagery be the imagery and let's see it. Let's, let's uh, picture it. Let's, let's put ourselves in those scenes, enter the world of the symbols, see how they relate to each other. And then we can begin to make decisions about how these um, visions relate to issues of actual history. Okay. Now, Revelation, I would argue, is meant to pull back the curtain and show us reality. Okay. So think of, think of at the time this is written. When John was writing, there was this Roman Empire that was dominating the known world, okay? And there's a lot of things that he references in Revelation that would have been direct ties to the Roman world at that time. And so a lot of it is, here's these Christians that are being persecuted, maybe put to death by their faith by this strong government that controls everything. And it's like John is pulling back a curtain and just saying, look, look how ugly this actually is, right? You're seeing not an emperor, but what you're seeing is a beast, right? And what you're seeing is not the goddess Roma, this beautiful goddess that you're offering sacrifices to, but no, it's this ugly whore of Babylon that's riding on this um, ugly beast and everything. And so it's trying to like show the nature of things and it's showing the actual weakness and frailty of these human powers and showing the actual power and triumph and the, the happy ending that the Lord gives us at the end of all those things. And so it's trying to show us like what's really going on um, behind the scenes. So it's showing us reality as we've never seen it in hopes that we see reality more truly than we have before. Um, so now along with that, then what I think happens here is that revelation works exceptionally well as a literary unit, but I think it's notoriously difficult to connect to a timeline. So I think we do ourselves a disservice when we start with the timeline approach to revelation and we try to say, okay, is this now? Is this um, when World War III officially starts? Is, you know, like every generation of Christians has identified an antichrist. It's often been a pope or a Caesar or a president or something, right? There's someone that you can point to to say that's the antichrist. There's always been a country, a nation that has been uh, uh, Babylon that's depicted in Revelation, okay? Whether that be Rome or... Um, 
I don't know, Germany or the United States or what have you, right? Every generation of Christians has been seeing the fulfillment of revelation happening in their time. I think we do ourselves a disservice by immediately saying the end times are just around the corner and let me look at my current events and see this is how it's happening. Now, I'm not saying that we aren't living in the end times. In fact, the Bible says that we are. The end times, it says, I, I think very, very clearly, um, not least in in Hebrews 1, the very beginning, the first few verses, that we're living in the end times. It started with Jesus uh, resurrecting from the dead that launched the end times, and it comes until the time he comes back. Uh, we're told to be ready and to be watchful, all those things. But I think when we take Revelation and we begin to immediately try to timeline the whole thing, we're missing the the connections, the literary connections between different pieces because we get so caught up in trying to make the different pieces literal or make the connections. I like the approach where we try to understand Revelation as a literary unit. And once we've done that, done that hard work of taking the book on its own terms, seeing the way it connects to itself, then we step back and we ask the questions of, okay, how, when, whatever. Um, For example, we make a big deal about how the mark of the beast is like um, is like written on people's foreheads or their their palms, so the back of their palms. Um, so there's this big deal, and, and Christians have tended to take that literally, right? There's 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 going to be this mark on the forehead, right? But we miss the fact that Revelation also describes um, the the righteous, the followers of Jesus, being marked on their foreheads, right? So we don't talk about the mark of the lamb; we just talk about the mark of the beast, and we're worried about credit cards and stuff. But we're missing a key component of the book of Revelation that would help us to avoid a lot of mistakes that have over the years proved to be basically nonsense. And so it's helpful for us to um, take it as a literary unit first. And then here's the big, big thing, big feature of Revelation that we can't forget. Revelation is meant to challenge or strengthen our allegiance. Okay, so this really is a book, not of theology and not just of end times calendaring, but it's a book about allegiance. Are we devoting our allegiance to the lamb who is Jesus, or are we devoting our allegiance to the beast or the false prophet or the dragon that's mentioned, okay? You you have to choose in Revelation, which one are you giving yourself to, okay? Um, are you going to be alleged? Are you going to, there's an invitation to come out of the wicked city, the wicked city of Babylon towards the end of the book. So God's people are invited to come out of that wicked city and instead to enter the city, the new city, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem enter by the gates. There's those two invitations there. So it really is all about our allegiance and how will we respond to the lamb? How will we respond to the beast and all these different things that we see? And so that's the call that we have to answer throughout. And we're really left with that alternative at the end of the book. Now, a few tips for reading Revelation that that are based on kind of these features of it. First of all, live within the imagery. So again, like I'm saying, try to avoid the, the pull to like immediately Google like Russia, you know, or whatever, um, like sit in the book first, put yourself in the imagery in the same way that we say, do that with narrative, do it with the gospels, put yourself in the stories, um, that we're reading and, and let the imagery kind of, um, take you and, um, strike you and hit you and move you and all those kinds of things. Um, only after we've taken the book as a whole, read it on its own terms, we'll be ready to see how it plays out into our daily lives. So sit with the visions. Um, they have rich symbols, they have stunning images, and that's all for a reason, okay? Now, I want to show you an example of how subtle but I think important this is. So in Revelation 5, okay, when you step into the imagery, you can see there's a connection between like the different senses that are being played. So so we really do have to put ourselves into these things. So John hears, there's an announcement in John 5 
about a conquering lion, okay? Like he, there's an announcement. John's sitting here and he hears this announcement, the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, okay? So he's picturing this lion that's triumphing. And when he turns, what he sees, so notice we're switching between our senses. The sense of hearing announces the conquering lion. And when he turns and switches senses and sees with his eyes, what does he see? He sees a lamb that's been slaughtered, okay? Now we know theologically that's, that's exactly what Jesus is, right? He's the lamb that was sacrificed and slaughtered and killed for us, right? And that makes him the triumphant lion of the tribe of Judah, this powerful figure. That's how he declared his victory, uh, won his victory, was through offering himself as a sacrifice. But we'd miss this subtle connection if we weren't stepping into the imagery. You might immediately start looking up lions or lambs or slaughtering or whatever, right? But if you can sit in the imagery, you can think, how interesting. John heard the announcement of a conquering lion, and he turned around and saw a slaughtered lamb. Isn't that interesting? We know theologically so much about what that means, about how the lamb won his victory. You can go a little bit further into Revelation 7, and you hear a similar dynamic being played out. And so, again, if we can put ourselves in the imagery, Revelation 7, there's this census that's being read aloud, okay? And so it's it's numbering the number of warriors from each of the tribes. And in these, these numbers, every time in the Old Testament there's a census, it was a military census. So it's the numbering of an army that's being given. So he's hearing the numbering of the army, right? But then when he turns from what he's heard to what he sees, he sees a multitude of martyrs from every nation on earth. It's these people clothed in white robes. And again, if we're paying attention to the symbolism of revelation, we can see that the white robes are given to the martyrs, those who have laid down their lives because they refused to let go of their witness for the lamb. So again, just putting it back, John, see, uh, John hears a military census, an army, a powerful army being numbered, 144,000 in this army, right? In the same way that two chapters earlier, he had heard the announcement of a conquering lion. And then when he turns and looks, chapter five, he saw a slaughtered lamb. Chapter seven, he sees these slaughtered human individuals who gave up their lives for the sake of the lamb. In the same dynamic, a victory conquered by the laying down of one's life. Now, you'll have to wrestle with it. You'll have to read it and see whether you think that analysis holds up. But what I'm trying to use this example to show you is that there is so much richness in the symbolism itself. Okay, I haven't tied that to any historical events. I'm not trying to like get down into when and how, whatever. There's so much richness theologically in just the descriptions themselves and how they relate to each other and the way the symbolism kind of connects and builds within the book itself. And often we rob ourselves of that um, when we are trying to do this calendar work, this newspaper headline work of connecting it to, is it today? Is it tomorrow? Is it is it when World War III is declared? What is it? Okay. So this is, I think, the most important thing you can do with the book of Revelation is sit in the imagery and weigh it. The second thing I'd encourage you to do is look for interpretive clues left by the author or by the characters in the story. And so, for example, in the section that we read, the beginning of uh, Revelation 1, there's all this crazy stuff said about Jesus, right? And, and so, like, and for, for, so just as an aside, in seminary I was taught, um, the rule of thumb is if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Okay. So what that means is if you can read it literally, if the literal sense makes sense, like if it's like logical to take a thing literally, then don't seek another sense for it. Don't try to interpret it figuratively, metaphorically. That's pretty good advice overall. But what I would say is when you come to Revelation, I've heard some people still claim that over Revelation. Hey, look, if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. 
I read it and already we're a few verses in to the book of Revelation and here's somebody with um, hair that's like the hairs of his head are white, like white wool, like snow. Okay, that that works, right? Eyes like a flame of fire. Mm, we're feeling a little metaphorical at least, right? Feet like bronze, refined in fire, voice like the roar of waters. And then there's these, there's seven stars holding in his hand, a mouth, out of his mouth comes this sharp two-edged sword and a face shining like the sun. I'm saying, here we are. Uh, exactly 16 verses into Revelation, and the literal sense does not make sense. We have to treat that metaphorically because that is not describing the physical appearance of Jesus, okay? so it's But it's trying to communicate something to us true. So it's not to say it's not true. It's just to say it, he's using figures of speech. He's using uh, visions, images, to communicate something really important. Now, we want to look for clues as we do this left by the author, okay? And what, what we read, John actually begins to explain some of these things. So in verse 20 of chapter one, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, these are the golden lampstands. I'm sorry. And the, and the golden lampstands, the seven, he says, um, these are the stars of the, um, my goodness, I can't even read right now. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There's a huge interpretive clue that John gives us. So every time then we see lampstands, we connect it back to churches, okay? And when we see stars, we can picture angels or messengers of the churches. And so now, again, it doesn't solve everything, right? We want to keep clued in uh, for interpretive clues that we can see that are going to help us interpret the story itself, okay? Um, The third thing we want to do is consider the relation of these images to the events of history. So now I want to say we don't start here, but we do have to get here, okay? So, for example, I talked about Revelation 12, and there's a a woman who um, has a a crown of 12 stars on her head. She gives birth to a child. There's a dragon that tries to consume the child, but the ground swallows up the dragon, saves the child. Um, This seems to be a reference connected to historical events to not something necessarily in the future, but to Jesus' first coming. Um, Jesus, you know, who was born of the uh, nation of Israel, right? The 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and Satan tried to destroy Jesus as an infant and then again as an adult. And so that seems to be like a pretty clear tie that we have right there. So I think Revelation is meant to do that. I just think we have to be careful in how we do it. And sometimes it's looking at past events. Sometimes it's looking at future events. Um, we don't really know. But remember, right? Remember, it's trying to get us to test our allegiance. So sometimes it's less about knowing the right thing, right? So it's it's not about like, okay, um, when this happens, this happens, this happens, I'm going to know the end is coming within X amount of years. I don't think that's the point as much as when you start seeing these kinds of tests coming and these types of, of challenges to our allegiance coming, make sure your allegiance is set on Christ, the lamb who was slaughtered for us and not on these powerful world systems. Um, And so being ready and finding the historical significance, I think, is always going to be less about being that savvy person that knows all the answers and can do the prophecy talks and can tell everybody exactly what's coming and what sequence, less about that, more about being that person that is ready and is following Jesus. And, And regardless of how high the heat gets turned up, we're saying, I'm following the lamb. He's the one I'm going with. I'm going to do what he calls me to. And so that's kind of our last point is that we want to then let our life be shaped by the overall picture of Revelation. So, so um, stand in awe of, of God, the one who there's, there's um, these angelic beings that are just falling on their faces, worshiping, and there's these 24 elders that are just falling down off of their thrones and worshiping 
God, right? Um, in awe of a God who is pouring out this really intense wrath in the book of Revelation, right? So let your life be shaped by that. So don't wait for some end time thing, but let your life be shaped now by the reality that there's this God that, man, loves us, invites us, calls us into something beautiful, but at the same time, um, be, be terrified by the major consequences that we see in refusing to follow him and choosing ourselves and other things rather than the, the real pursuit of him. So th- those are my words for revelation. Now jump into it. It gets confusing. It gets hard, um, but you can trace it. You can see how the bulls work and the, um, the trumpets work and the seals work within the book of revelation. You can see, you can tie them together. You can kind of watch how they relate to each other. You can, you can ask questions like, is it, is describing the same events or they sequential events? You can do all of that. But the big picture is let the imagery shape you. I would just say, enjoy the book of revelation, like enjoy it. It's really beautiful. It is really lovely. It ties in, like I said, hundreds of old Testament illusions, prophecies, visions, metaphors, ties it all up together to all talk about how amazing Jesus is. So enjoy the book, um, but take it seriously because it's calling us to something really important. All right. So that said, that is our three New Testament genres. If you kind of just stay somewhat clued into those kind of tips, I think it's going to give you a sense for the Old and New Testaments of kind of what's happening with each book of the Bible. So when you pick up Job, don't be surprised that it feels different um, than Genesis does, right? So um, what's going on there? How is it working? And uh, and that helps us be better observers of what's happening, which then sets us up for our next session, which is going to be on interpretation. Now that we've observed, now that we've kind of understood some of the ground rules, how then are we going to begin to put the pieces together into solid interpretation so that we can ask not just what is said, but also like, what does that mean? How do we interpret what this is? So that's what we'll tackle in the next session.